Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode four in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 27th of February. Uh, Leon, what's on the cards? Well, today we're talking to Sandrine Graymard. She comes from France and runs this amazing place called Treetop Adventures. Up there with the kookaburras and the possums. That's right, and she's had quite a adventurous life, and it's going to be great talking to her. And then we're going to have a chat with Sinclair Davidson from RMIT about what to expect from the 2015 budget. And not a lot, I gather. No. Now, let's talk to Sandrine and find out about life in the tops of the trees. Sandrine Gamard, uh, tell us about uh, Echoline and Treetop Adventure Parks. How does that work? Echoline is a company that actually builds and develops new adventure activities in Australia and, mm. and around the world. And Treetop is the operation side of our business. And so what do, what do people get when they go there? So, to the, so the Adventure Park um, is offering people a chance to get up in the treetops. Um, they, we've, we've got different experiences, so we've got experiences where they have to push their limits, uh, and that's the Treetop Adventure Park. We've got experiences where they can learn about the environment, and that's uh, uh, Treetop Safari. And we have um, an experience that's um, just for the fun and the thrill of being up in the trees, and it's the roller coaster zip line, the uh, Treetop Crazy Rider. <laughs> Treetop Crazy Rider, how does that work? Yes. Um, it's, it's actually a, a roller coaster zip line. It's a new concept and actually it's, uh, it's our own, um, development. So we, uh, listen to what our customer have to say and the main feedback we have been getting for the past six years, uh, through our adventure park is that they love the flying fox. It makes them, you know, it, it gives, the flying fox give that exhilarating feeling of flying. Um, and so we've, you know, over the years we've made them longer, we've made them harder, um, more exhilarating. And the next step for us was to get them, instead of going in a straight line, uh, get them to go up and down and around trees. And so we've uh, worked two years to, to develop that new concept, and it's just opened uh, on the Central Coast maybe three weeks ago. And so this is in the Central Coast of New South Wales? Yes. So what are the nearest towns near you? Um, Wyong and Gosford. Right. But we're only about an hour from the Sydney CBD. In choosing your venue, Sandrine, do you do, um, what, in cooperation with local authorities or forestry, this sort of thing? How do you get into the treetops? Yes. Uh, when we first um, had the idea to uh, start operating in the trees, uh, we decided to um, to look for, for land, suitable land. And we found that only, like, mainly government land can uh, offer the uh, right catchment, uh, the right size of land, but also the right zoning. Because most land... Um, like private land, on, you're not allowed to conduct, you know, a business like treetops. So we approached uh, government, and now we're operating on four government land. Um, we're opening, we're uh, operating on uh, state forest uh, on the central coast. We're operating in Western Sydney Parkland, 
Uh, in Sydney, we're operating in a regional park managed by National Park on, on National Park and Wildlife Service land. And we are also, since yesterday, operating at Taronga Zoo in Sydney. So, I mean, what's, what sort of take-up is there? I mean, how much, how, much, uh, how, how much do the customers come to you? I mean, what, what sort of interest has that sparked among the public? Um, it's been very successful. Uh, from, actually, from the start, we started with the Central Coast site, which is, uh, especially when we started, uh, the site had no visitation, uh, and it was really tucked away from the general public. Um, and we were forecasting a really slow um, start of business, and we were really positively surprised and tripled our forecasted figures uh, the first year. So roughly, uh, an adventure park would be able to get between 20 and um, 40,000 people a year. Most of ours get about 30,000 uh, people through uh, because we have a limited capacity. Obviously, we're not um, like Wet and Wild or a zoo that can have you know 10,000 people through the door in one day. Um, we have a very limited capacity because we fit our customer with harnesses and get them in a treetop. So it's a much more um, individual uh, experience. And it's very unusual for Australia. You don't really see that many businesses like that here. No, no. We started the first one uh, six years ago uh, on the Central Coast, and uh, it's, it's growing. Uh, we do have a few competitors now, but it's, uh, it, it's not uh, too competitive for now, and we've, we're quite well-placed um, in uh, and I, I believe it's also uh, due a lot to the fact that we build and operate, uh, which makes us very, like, uh, I, I believe, more flexible and uh, more capable of adapting to our customer needs uh, and also um, prone to more research and development and, and providing some system that are actually Australians. So uh, where do you see it going from here? Since we launched our new Treetop Crazy Rider and also the new um, safety system that controls it, we have seen a lot of interest all over the world for this type of activity. So I see us um, in the next few years uh, exporting our safety system and also expanding to, into more operation. There still is places in Australia that don't have anything in the treetops, and we want to fill that gap. Not that we want to um, fill every space with, um, with activities and adventures in the treetops, but uh, we find that getting people out uh, in the outdoor, active, doing healthy activities, is really uh, important. Uh, it's, it's important to us, and it also is important, we believe, for, for people, for future generations. It's also important when we do that for people to really, when people really enjoy the, the treetops and the outdoor, we believe that they're more prone to protecting the environment. So what you're saying is that uh, you're planning to expand this beyond the Central Coast into other parts of Australia? Yes, we are beyond New South Wales. We have three parks uh, oh, sorry, four parks <laughs> since yesterday um, in New South Wales. Uh, we, we have already um, been a successful proponent to an expression of interest in Melbourne 
so hopefully this will be happening in 2015. Uh, and we, yes, we are looking for other opportunities in other states, definitely. Now, I mean, what's intriguing about your background? I mean, you, you obviously, uh, you, got, you guys came from France. You did high-rise work in Paris. You, you uh, taught in Vietnam. You taught business in a Hanoi privately owned university on behalf of the Catholic Committee Against Hunger and for Development, a program. And you're involved in other programs. What drew you to Australia? Oh, my husband and I, when we first came to Australia, we just fell in love. Um, I think most Australians don't realize how exceptional Australia is. And so when we decided to settle somewhere, because we had just recently met when we first came to Australia, we decided to try uh, to settle in Australia and raise our family here. Because we, we believe Australia is a land of opportunities, um, and we believe it's also the best growing up condition for children. And, uh, and it's good to run business here? Yes, definitely. It is. It's not easy. Um, and there are challenges. And obviously we are also in an industry that's tricky. Obviously there's a lot of safety involved. But yes, I, think, I definitely think that there, is, there are still a lot of opportunities for businesses in Australia in all fields. If you work really hard, and you, you see a gap somewhere, it's uh, not too difficult to do. It took us six years to start our first park. We had to go through a lot of um, you know, paperwork and, and convincing to, to be able to get the first opportunity uh, for our first park. But then it became much easier. And now that we have that experience with uh, dealing with government, it's actually became uh, an asset our company. Sandrine, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you so much. It's a clever idea, Leon. These uh, treetop walks and things like that, are, uh, there's a lot in America. Uh, New Zealand's noted for it and uh, somewhere that uh, doesn't happen very often in Australia. No, it's good to see businesses getting into it rather than government bodies. All right, now let's listen to Sinclair and his prognostications. Sinclair Davidson, they are now preparing the 2015 budget. What's your forecast? This is always a good time of the year because the silly season is out and about with ideas being trialled in the media. I think we're going to be looking at a government trying to buy some popularity. Uh, so we're looking at populist moves. The government keeps foreshadowing its family packages. And also we're going to see national security moves. Um, there's going to be an announcement this week on national security. So it's going to be populist on national security and populist on spending money on families. So that, that's what we're looking at. So we're getting greed and fear. Yes, greed and fear, and <laughs> it probably works quite well. And I, I almost think we're going to be into almost an election budget. So we're going to have two election budgets in a row after last year's disaster, um, government trying to buy itself popularity and terrorize us into sort of going back into the fold sort of affair. That's, that's where we're at. So uh, nothing responsible, in, in other words. Which could bounce on the government if it got too extreme, couldn't it? Yes, I, I, I think, I don't want to say people are cynical, but I think people are onto the cynicism that we've seen in, in, in budgetary matters. Over the last six years, we've seen extraordinary amounts of cynicism, and I think the, the voting public have more or less uh, updated 
their views on government and their expectations and they're going to be taking a much harder look. Um, people don't like being bribed with their own money. Now, what's the? there's been various positions put on what the families package will have, particularly with childcare and the amount of subsidies that the government will be extending on it. What's your view about this? Um, I think the, the, the argument is going to be that this is a productivity measure and not a uh, welfare measure and the argument is going to revolve around increasing female workplace participation. Now, I think that's probably a good idea, generally speaking, because Australian participation rates tend to be low anyway, and female participation tends to be lower than male participation. So these are things that we should be thinking about in a productivity sense anyway. But you've also got to bear in mind is that um, people very often don't want to work full-time. So you, you, you have to create that flexibility in the economy where you've got um, the economy producing both full-time and part-time jobs, depending upon what people want. So they would have to be looking at sort of labor market flexibility, which is, of course, off the table. So that's the problem. So it then becomes a story of throwing heaps of money at childcare in order to get more places available there. Now, the problem that we have is that when you throw subsidies at things, invariably what happens is the providers end up getting richer and you don't always get more places. The other issue that you have is you have creeping credentialism in childcare positions. So the argument now is that in order to be looking after a toddler, you need to have a bachelor's degree or there's been some people carrying on about them having master's degrees. That basically adds to the cost of providing the service but doesn't actually add to the amount of places actually being offered. So you have to you, you have this balance between what qualifications do you need to look after a child, how much it's going to cost, and places that are available. And, and to date, I don't think we've actually got that balance quite right. Now, that's not just a case of throwing money at it. That's a case of sort of careful thought and process. I don't want to be horrible about our friends in Canberra, but careful thought and process is not always their strong point. Um, They are good at throwing money. So we're going to see lots of money being thrown at it. And I don't think we're going to see lots of outcome for the money that gets thrown. So you don't see any changes with uh, childcare apart from uh, the money being thrown? There'll probably be a reform package where reform is sort of now in scare quotes because uh, we, it's, 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 it'll be described as a reform package. The other issue is that um, we should be saying to people, you know, if you can't afford to have children, you can't have them looked after, should you be having as many children as you are been having? Now, this is a bit of a, a policy disaster area because you remember 10 years ago, Mr. Costello was saying, have one for mum, one for dad and one for the country. And uh, now we're saying, and go back to work. And, well, who's going to be looking after the one for the country? And I think the taxpayers are going to be asked to dip into their pockets and look after the one for the country. We've actually had a bit of a change in policy, no clear thought. The intergenerational report is supposed to provide the framework for that, but that's just more or less been trying to scare us into taxing superannuation as opposed to doing things around children. So it it is a bit of a, a disaster schmozzle area. The problem is that a lot of the 2014 budget hasn't yet been passed by the Senate, and it's unlikely to get passed by the Senate. Where does this leave the 2015 budget? I think we will be behind where the government wanted to be 
in, in some ways. The budget deficit will be bigger than what was expected. Debt will be higher than what was expected. Bearing in mind a lot of the things that the government was going to be putting through that didn't get through were really going to be biggies affecting budgets in the out years. So the the net position isn't that clear to me. And a, a lot of what they call savings really taxes. Last year's budget, the 2014 budget, was too clever by half. And I think they're going to be scaling back the 2015 budget, but more more spending, more populist spending is going to be built into it. What kind of budget would you like to see what kind of budget should we have in Australia instead? Well, in the ideal world, we would be bringing current expenditure under control as rapidly as possible and working from there. Unfortunately, we we have politicians now who sort of lack the political will to take those sorts of tough decisions. So what I would like to see certainly as a minimum effort, would be to freeze current rates of spending at the levels that they are at. So simply say for the next three years or four years, pick a number, we will not actually escalate payments. We will freeze them at our current levels and hope to grow out of the trouble. I mean, that at a, at a bare minimum is, is, is what would be required, if they're even up to that with an open question. But certainly cutting expenditure across the board would be the necessary thing to do because what people talk about, they say, you know, the mining boom is over. But in actual fact, our terms of trade are still higher now than what they were when John Howard was in office. So the fact that the budget is in trouble is because we've actually spent more than what we, we, we could afford to spend. Not that we haven't taken in the revenue. Is that when, when, when government says revenue is falling, they actually mean falling relative to our expectations, not falling relative to what it was last year. So the numbers are still all going up. Spending is going up by more than it should be there, by more than we can afford. If they don't have the political will to cut it, they should at least have the political will to freeze it. So freezing it would, in fact, improve the uh, the overall effect, wouldn't it? Because if you've got reasonable income. Well, freezing it is the equivalent of stop digging. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we, we, we would still be in the hole, but we wouldn't be digging. And that would be a, a good start. Now, and, and to be sure, this is tough on everybody who benefits from government spending in one way or another. But the problem is we have too many people benefiting from government spending in one way or the other. Um, there, there, there was a comment that came out of the United States uh, um, over the weekend was says, the mark of a society is how well we look after the middle class, which I thought, well, okay, that's that's very different from what John Rawls was saying. But okay, um, our middle class has been getting far too much. People who can look after themselves should look after themselves. Now, a lot of people think that means that we should change the, the taxation arrangements on super or we should start asset testing the family home. But I think before we we get to that level. There, there are a lot of other things that, that can and should be done. Some of those would be, part, apart from freezing, means testing some of these benefits? I, I think so. certainly means testing. I mean, if, if you are above uh, average weekly earnings, which these days is about $80,000, they should be looking at means testing almost any payment going to people above average weekly earnings or households above the median. Um, though they should be means testing almost anything. There, there should be no unmeans tested welfare. Um, even things like childcare, we should say, well, is this really a productivity measure? That's how it's been sold. Um, Mr. Hockey was selling the paid parental leave scheme as a productivity measure. And, and you just got to say, no, I don't believe you. Um, this is a welfare measure. And the biggest, the bigger problem also is that you've got a government which you'd have to say has uh, got a fragile hold on its future. Um, that it certainly does, and it, 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 it's a strange position for them to have been in. But when you are, 
I want to say lazy and arrogant, but think of words similar to lazy and arrogant. When you are lazy and arrogant about your first budget, um, you are going to be in trouble because primarily people are looking to the government to provide stability to allow the economy to grow. And they haven't done that. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? I love his line about the two, what to expect from the 2015 budget, a mix of fear and greed. Fear and greed, yes. Indeed, indeed. That'll be it, I would guess, unless there's a revolution and suddenly there's a change of leadership and a change of uh, tone in the Liberal government. Well, let's watch this space. It's a big, deep space. That's right. Okay, now the news, Leon. The big news for the week was that Eurozone finance ministers approved a four-month extension to Greece's bailout, although Athens still faces hurdles before it can receive any new cash. The Eurozone finance ministers approved the extension to the 240 billion euro or 348 billion Aussie bailout, which will now run until the end of June rather than expiring at the end of February. After they discussed a list of reform measures proposed by the Greek government, however, Greece still faces challenges getting its hands on the rescue cash, which the International Monetary Fund saying the list of overhaul measures is generally not that specific. Similar concerns were, were raised by the European Central Bank, which had been overseeing Greece's bailout, along with the IMF and the European Commission. And European finance ministers said that no money would be transferred to Greece until the promised measures, which include cracking down on tax evasion and streamlining its public service, have actually been implemented. And IMF chief Christine Lagarde said the Greek list fails to give sufficiently clear assurances on really important measures like overhauling the pension systems and valuated tax and other steps to liberalise closed sectors. And she said more details were needed about the privatisation of public assets, reforming the public administration and the labour market. Yeah, the Greek government's got a real problem because the public perception of what's a fair thing in Greece is very different from what the Northern Europeans expect. Well, the Greek government's problem, Gary, is that they were elected. They were elected by the people to ease the bailout conditions. Exactly. They are now in a very difficult position. Yeah. And they're going to ha- and there's going to be a really if they want that money, they're going to have to do a really hard sell to the voters. And their voters are not going to like it. No. Now, uh, more bad news out of Europe, but consumer prices across the European Union fell 0.5% in January. That's the fastest rate since records began in 1997. That's increased the risk that the 28-member bloc is going to slide into deflation. And from uh, the world's largest economy, uh, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen has laid down the framework for interest rate increases later this year. She sounded really positive about the economy's performance in the past six months. And she said if the economy keeps improving as the Fed anticipates, the central bank will at some point begin considering an increase in the target range for the federal funds rate on a meeting by meeting basis. And with that warning, the Fed leader has subtly shifted the Fed's public discussion of the outlook for rate away from assurances that rates are going to stay low. Now they're moving into a discussion of when and how fast they're going to move up. And the economy seems to be doing very well. I mean, for example, well, housing building starts uh, something like a record at the moment. That's right. Housing building starts are going really well in the US yep. at the moment, and uh, employment is creeping up. Now, China's manufacturing activity edged up to a four-month high in February, but the worrying part, Gary, was that export orders decreased for the first time in nearly a year, and that's the latest sign of uncertainty for the world's number two economy. HSBC's preliminary purchasing managers index rose to 50.1 this month. That's up from 49.7 in January. New export orders contracted for the first time since April, and that can only mean one thing, Gary. That's a sign of waning demand because the global economy is still struggling to recover. 
mean, Australia might be dependent upon sales of iron ore and resources to China, but China's very dependent on uh, purchasing from the rest of the world. That's right. And I might add to that that the falling iron ore price is having an impact on M&A activity in the mining sector. According to an Ernst & Young study, deal volumes in the Australian mining and metal sector slumped to an 11-year low last year, with softening commodity prices uh, forcing greater com- caution from potential predators. And the EY report found there were just 144 Australian deals in 2014. That's down from 178 in 2013. That's the lowest since 2003, Gary. And the other worry is the Commonwealth Bank figures show economy-wide spending has slowed to a crawl. Spending just rose 0.2% in January, marking the slowest spending growth since 2012. And wages have grown at their slowest ever annual rate since the government started issuing data on wage prices increased nearly two decades ago. And the official figures show wages rose by 0.6% in December quarter. The annual pace of wage growth fell to a record low for the year to December. The ABS wage price index rose 2.5%. And in real terms, we've actually got a decline in wages in their buying power. Well, that means two things. I mean, at, at its best, it means the economy is stagnating. At its worst, it means it's going backwards. Yeah. National Australia Bank plans to beef up how it handles complaints while broadening a review of portfolios. It's paid compensation to hundreds of customers in recent years for bad financial advice. It's paid out between 10 and $15 million combined to more than 750 customers of its wealth management division over five years. Now, you remember this follows last year's public apology from the Commonwealth Bank for widespread mis-selling of financial products, Gary. Indeed, yeah, very embarrassing, and now we've got another one. Which is why Opposition Treasury spokesman Chris Bowen has added his calls, voice to calls by Independent Senator Nick Xenophon, National Senator John Williams, and Green Senator Peter Wish-Wilson for a Royal Commission into the financial services industry. And ASIC has used its former legal powers to gather more information from the NAB now. Seems to me this is a spin-off from the days of the boom when financial advisors could lie in their own pockets and still show a profit for the investor. Now it's harder to show a profit. Absolutely. Now, ANZ has opted to sell almost a third of its $16 billion Asanda car leasing business in March or April. ANZ and advisors Deutsche Bank are going to sell off Asanda's dealer floor planning finance division, which enables car dealers to borrow against retail inventory. And some of the leasing and higher purchase car financing that comes from dealer floor plans is also on offer. ANZ will retain the rest of Asanda, comprising assets like car leases, personal loans, and higher purchase contracts. In total, that portfolio will be worth five and six billion, and uh, the latest reports is that Macquarie is sniffing around it. Yeah, Macquarie's active lately, isn't it? And uh, bad news for Australia Post: it's forecasting its first annual loss in over thirty years, with a fifty-six percent slide in half-year profit. The federal government-owned mail, parcels, and retail business reported a ninety-eight million dollar first half profit after tax, and the decline was almost entirely driven by one hundred and fifty-one million dollar loss in the letters business, which was fifty-seven percent worse than last year's loss. And Australia Post says letter volumes have fallen 8.2%. And they say that's the worst decline since letter volumes peaked in 2008. And they're forecasting a full year loss for the group. It's first since 1982. You have to expect that. I wonder if they couldn't hive off the actual physical letter delivery system in much the way BAP, BHP split its company. Or uh, or do something like what British what the British did. Yeah, the British Mail. Yeah, the British Mail and floated some of it. Floated, yeah. Government has come to the rescue and it's going to allow Australia Post to introduce a two-speed mail service that will see stamp prices jump as high as $1 for regular mail and $1.50 for priority mail. But the government is still sorting through the specifics, but it's likely to freeze stamp prices at $0.70 for Christmas cards and year-round for concession card holders. 
The Brits, of course, have a two-level two uh, postage system already. That's right, and it seems to work quite well. With yeah, them. it does. And Gary, the profit season continues, and um, BHP posted a net profit of 4.2 billion, 47.4 decline on the previous corresponding period. QBE posted a net profit of 742 million, which is a sharp turnaround from a loss of 254 million a year ago. Specialty Fashion, which owns Miller's and Katie's brands, made a net profit of 5.85 million. That's down from 16.23 million a year ago. Lend Lease posted a net profit of 315.6 million, which is 25.4% up on the 251.6 million last year. Beach Energy swung to a net loss of 79.1 million from a net profit of uh, 160.48 million a year ago. Australia's biggest steelmaker, Bluescope, made a profit of 79.6 million, which is up 62% from the 49 million a year ago. Engineering services group UGL posted a net loss of 122.5 million compared with the profit it made of 29.5 million a year ago. Caltex increased its full year profit by 48% to 493 million. That's up from its last year's result of 332 million. Bramble's profit uh, came in at 485.2 million, which is up 6%. Spotless, which rejoined the stock exchange in May, made a net profit of 60.2 million. That's up from a pro forma 48.7 million a year before. Aurora, which demerged from Ancor in December 2010, 2013, sorry, posted a statutory net profit of 69.1 million. That's up 88.8% from 36.6 million for the first for the first half of 2014. Village Roadshow posted a net profit of 113.3 million, down 26% on the previous corresponding period. Atlas Iron swung to a steep first half loss in excess of 1 billion because it became the victim of the slumping iron ore prices. Posted a net loss of 1 billion compared to a profit of 73.67 million the year before. Healthscope posted a net profit of 58.6 million in the six months through uh, December compared to a 27.8 million loss a year ago. Seven Group's net profit slumped 74%, falling to 68.5 million. Gloria Jeans owner Retail Food Group increased its profit by 24.4% to 21.5 million. And Worley Parsons posted a profit of 104.3 million, which is down 7% on the 112 million profit recorded in the previous corresponding period. And that's it for this week, Gary pretty mixed bag in the profit thing though it's uh, interesting that uh, there are some very decent profits in there there are some good ones in there and but you can see the iron ore price falling iron ore price is having an impact and i think we're going to see some more junior miners going to the wall and that's it for this week gary and uh next week uh, we're going to have a chat with uh, will duckworth will duckworth from ibm yep he uh, talks about the alliance between apple and ibm and what's in it for the corporate and uh, larger smbs and he's going to be talking about all about the challenge of mobility for businesses exactly right and it is a challenge in the meantime you can catch us on twitter at talking biz or on facebook until then stay safe and we'll talk to you next week